Hi, and welcome to Season 5 of Business Book Talk. Hope you're going to enjoy this new season. I'm really excited about it. I'm sure you will really enjoy some of the books that we have planned. So let's get on with the show. Hi, everybody. Bob here, and I've got Mighty Mid-Sized Companies, How Leaders Overcome Seven Silent Growth Killers. Robert Scher. I've got him online here. And uh, we were just doing a little ramble before, chatting about California, chatting about Vancouver. It's really interesting, the differences between running a business here on the West Coast and the East Coast, even though it has nothing to do with the guy's book. I don't know where that one came from. It must be Monday morning. Anyways, Robert, thanks for coming on the show. And the first really tough question I'm going to ask you uh, is actually to talk about what defines a mid-sized company. Well, a mid-sized company, based on most of the literature and research, is a company with revenues between 10 million U.S. and a billion. And it's this—it's the point at which a business stops being able to be easily controlled by you know one founder, one leader, and a team of helpers. And not all businesses go into mid-size exactly at 10 million. Some it's more like 20 million. Some start to feel the effects of mid-size even at 5 million revenues. Yeah, it's it's interesting. A lot of the clients I'm in, that, that for me, I categorize them as it's either a professional business, which means that you have a bunch of people that have nothing to do with the original family, or it's a family business and you've got board members or, or C-suite people that are actually members of the family. Do you find that that mid-sized company have outgrown that structure? Well, it's really different. You know, there are startups that are started with venture funding and have mm. boards from the start, and they're still effectively small businesses until they get enough people and so on to develop. On the other hand, there are family businesses started by a founder that get to seven, eight hundred million dollars. I'm thinking of one right now that's an eight hundred million dollar family business. It's professionally run. Mm. Uh, it's clearly midsize, but it's still owned by the family. So there's a lot of different ways that businesses can grow from small to midsize. And it's not just sort of family run versus professionally run. Mm. You know what, it's uh, one of the things I love about the book is is all the little illustrations you've got in there because I'm a very visual person. Sometimes when I'm reading uh, something in a book, I really have a hard time getting my mind around like, what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? So I love that in this book. But I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite illustration as, as far as really crystallizing an idea? Well, you know, it's funny you ask. So I've animated all those and colorized them all for my, my presentations that I do around the country. Um, my favorite one, and maybe it's just because of the animation, is the one uh, that's in the liquidity crash chapter mm. that shows a truck barreling down a, a curvy highway. And you have those those uh, uh, emergency lanes that trucks can pull off on and usually filled with sand or gravel to slow the truck down and get <laughs> brakes fail. And uh, that illustration shows a truck that's, you know, working its brakes and it's got its, uh, its uh, uh, we reduce some, some parachutes on it to try to slow down. And, and then in the crash lane, there's really the elements of a balance sheet because when mid-sized companies that have a lot of momentum and there's a lot at stake encounter big turbulence, whether it's a big downturn or their key customer drops out, slowing that business down fast enough so that it can stop safely and the business can walk away, if you will, is is really a matter of having a balance sheet that's ready for it, a balance sheet that has enough left in it to slow down where you burn through maybe your 
uh, cash balances. You can borrow some more from the bank. You can sell down some inventory. If you've got inventory, you can work harder to collect your receivables. And the sort of the last gasp is maybe someone putting in some more capital. But if you've been running a business so lean and so close to the edge to begin with, and you don't have a balance sheet, you're in trouble. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's actually quite interesting because I would say almost 100% of all businesses in, in North America the last five years have been experiencing that conundrum of like, how do we slow down? How do we make ourselves survivable over these lean, lean years? Do you think uh, medium-sized companies, or well, even small companies now, um, are gearing up and are starting to be a little bit more adventurous and say, okay, it's time to get back on the highway. It's time to be driving at maximum speed. Or are people still worried and staying in the slow lanes? I think that increasingly people are getting into the faster lanes. It's different in different parts of North America, so it's not uniform, certainly. But I I think that is happening. What I worry more about is that an entrepreneur or a founder or a CEO gets overly excited Mm -hmm. and puts his or her foot all the way on the gas and uses up the liquidity that's built into a balance sheet because there is another downturn coming. I hope it's five years away. But what has to happen is during good times, yes, you want to spend more and accelerate and grow the business, but you also want to build back up that balance sheet, pay down some bank debt, build up some cash. If you can take some out yourself, if you're closely held, save it. Don't just spend it all. So that as the business accelerates, the balance sheet strengthens along with it so that you can either use that balance sheet to grow faster or it's there as your airbag if all of a sudden something goes wrong. The the, the absolute wrong thing to do, and I worry about many mid-sized businesses, is to use up all of their nickels, weaken their balance sheet, trying to grow, and then they've got no, uh, they've got no cushion. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you basically you're talking about chapters here: reckless attempts at growth, and this is a, a perfect segue because it's basically seven silent growth killers. And I think this is an incredibly timely book because there's so many companies out there that are, are frustrated that you know you're leading the company and you've got a, a group of managers that are basically straining, say, look, we're so bored of trying to do this slowly and uh, can't we grow? For gosh sakes, give us give us the go-ahead. And I think you're right. I, I, if you uh, basically let, uh, what, what's that famous say? Let loose the the, uh, the hounds of war <laughs> on, on, onto the competition. Say, we're going to crush the competition. Uh, you can end up basically messing your whole company up or killing it. Well, you, you can, and I'm, I'm all for aggressive growth, and I'm all for competition. I think that's great. The question is, are we going to dive into a war, if we're going to use that example, mm. that we know we can win? Mm. And in a mid-sized business, there's a lot at stake. There's hundreds of millions of dollars, potentially, thousands of employees, depending on what size mid-size you are. So if, if we're too um, frivolous about this, um, the cost can be huge. And mm. so... You know, I, I really encourage uh, companies to, to look at three main factors. One is, 
do we really know how the marketplace is going to react? I, I just left uh, two weeks ago the office of someone who said, well, we put two, this is a cloud computing company, we put $2 million into this really cool new product, we got written up in the journals and everything, and we put another $2 million to market it, and here we are 18 months later, we haven't gotten one deal, and they had to lay off their entire engineering team and shrink the company by 50%. So they weren't really sure whether the market would buy. They went for it, they put $4 million into it, which all was debt, by the way. Um, but what could they have done to be more certain that the market really wanted it, right? They didn't go far enough. They didn't test enough. They didn't have enough trial balloons. They looked at people writing articles about it as, as exciting, but those weren't the people that were laying down cold, hard cash. So being confident in the marketplace and really having tested it is one of those elements. The next element is really understanding if the company can execute on schedule. So we often come up with new products or new services and they sound great, but it takes twice as long and twice as much money to actually develop them. And that's another huge stumbling block. So do we have a team that has done this before, something like it before, pushing our confidence higher? Now, if our confidence of being able to execute is high and our confidence in the marketplace is high, then release the hounds of war because we really believe we can get there. But if we're not as sure, then we only better release one hound because that hound could get shot and then we'll need to release the next hound <laughs> and have him run in a different pathway and so on. So, so those are two huge factors. The third one is our forecasting ability. Too many mid-sized companies sort of sketch out what it might cost, they get some ideas, but they haven't really modeled it. They don't have enough experience to know all the surprises that are gonna hammer them. And as a result, they may be executing on time, the marketplace may like it, but they realize they're woefully undercapitalized. And that's another way to go down in flame. So those three factors are the key to taking the reckless out of attempts at growth. I just wanna jump in here with uh, something I read a little uh, earlier in the book. and. Uh, experimenting and tinkering. And I wanted to get your definition because you can say experiment, people think, oh, scientific way of doing it. And tinkering is somebody in their garage just playing with stuff a little bit. But really, it must mean something totally different in the contents of this book. Well, it doesn't. You've come very close, Bob, and congratulations on that. I get this <laughs> question a lot. So when I talk about tinkering with strategy, it's it's doing it flippantly. It's saying, hey, I got an idea when I woke up this morning. And you know, all of us love our ideas when we get up in the morning and they pop into our head. They're a beautiful thing. But that's but to take that and then adjust or change the strategy of a mid-sized company is really dangerous because there's no discipline in it. And and that's my definition of tinkering. It is not a good thing um, because you don't have the discipline and the diligence that you would in an experiment. In an experiment, we say, gee, we're not just trying one thing, we have a control group, and we've got the experiment, and we have a clear process, and we're gonna write down what we're doing, and we're gonna isolate the number of variables so we really understand cause and effect. And I'm not saying that everything we try in business has to be developed in a laboratory, but it's that disciplined approach to say, maybe I'm the smartest guy in the world and no one has ever thought of this, but you know, let's test it. Let's go talk to customers. Let's ask 10 customers the same set of questions and see if we get the same kind of responses. There's some really simple, uh, uh, just streetwise approaches 
that, that any mid-sized company can take that will get us from believing in our ideas to having some evidence that it might work. And with that some evidence, maybe we can justify 10K or 100K or a million dollar experiment that proves it and de-risks it, critical word de-risks it further, so that we can then put 5 million or 10 million into it. But that approach produces consistently better results for mid-sized companies than getting bright ideas and throwing them into the midst of the business. Mm. Well, I, and I, I like the word you use, the word de-risk, which uh, I don't think that one's in the dictionary yet, but uh, it sounds very cool. I would like to ask you, uh, it takes me back to, to many, many years ago when somebody asked me, Bob, let's uh, launch a magazine. It's going to be great, blah, blah, blah. I've talked to a ton of people. Everybody says, yeah, let's do it. We need this type of magazine. I'll advertise in it, blah, blah, blah. And then we produce the magazine, put it out there, and went back to the same set of people and said, great, where's the – let's sign the contract for that six-month full-page ad. And they said, ah, you know what? We're not quite ready yet. We just want to watch the magazine develop. Do you think that people that have gone and gone through that advice we just talked about um, think that's, okay, now we can do it and there's going to be no problem? De-risking doesn't mean there's no risk. It just means that you have a higher chance of being able to see the stumbling blocks or uh, you're still risking stuff, but it's a more con controlled uh, situation. It's more controlled. There is no such thing as no risk. Mm. Well, almost nothing, right? So, so in a, in a small business, when you've got very little to risk because there's not a lot of capital, there's not a lot of people, sometimes... Uh, we, we might risk a lot because we have to move very fast. Maybe there's a market window that we believe is closing. And small entrepreneurial businesses are better equipped to do that mm -hmm. because it, 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 the overall risk to the funders and to everyone is, is lower. But in mid-size, you've got a core business that's producing $100 million, let's just say, a year in revenues. That's a precious thing. Mm -hmm. And so... With that running, we don't want to destroy that. We don't want to hurt that. And so as we look at other opportunities, and mind you, to grow a $100 million business by 10%, which is nice but not huge, that takes a $10 million revenue stream to do that. That's, that's not trivial, right? The bigger you get, the more something new has to produce real revenue. And there are so many ways to fail. There are so many ways to fail at anything we try in business. And so de-risking is saying, well, let's pick out the top two or three ways we could fail and let's do a little reconnoitering, another word that I think is fun, right? <laughs> Run out there and, and do a little, you know, get out ahead in a small way, just send one, one person out there to explore, to talk to a few customers, to do some small trial. And that way it's, it's about decreasing the risk or increasing the likelihood of being right. And through that process, it's not just dropping risk, but it's knowing which path to take enough ahead of time so that we make better choices. So um, it's, it's an incremental piece. I think you have to spend more time and more effort doing it the bigger the risk is to the organization. But it's typically very well worth it. And if I do a good job of de-risking one idea and find out that it might not be worth you know, going in on, I've got all that money left over that I haven't wasted to go and pursue the next good opportunity. Mm. And that kind of segues into a, into a critical piece is that it's much easier to get three ideas and have them compete against each other and choose the best one 
than to turn one idea down at a time because every idea has some merit, but we can't grow a business pursuing every good idea. We have to select the very best ideas and drive hard on those. And the best way to do that is to look at several alternatives. Is that because they end up being in competition with each other within an organization? You can contest how an idea stands up to that type of pressure? Yes, it's absolutely that. And to figure out which idea to pursue, it almost forces some analytics. Mm. It's also an emotional thing, Bob, because it's hard to say to someone, you know, that's a good idea, Bob, but I don't think it's good enough. Mm. Go get another one. I mean, that's hard and they feel bad. But when you get that same person and say, hey, we're all looking at three ideas and we're trying to find the best one, choosing the best one doesn't mean the others were bad. It just means they weren't as good as the best one. Mm -hmm. And we get consistently better results that way. Do you also find that if you have three ideas, you get more of a creative uh, look at those three ideas in the sense that, well, you know what? This third idea isn't looking so great now that we got these other two ideas, but this component of the third idea would actually make the second idea really, really uh, more viable. It's certainly the case when the three ideas are related. Uh, interestingly, there's a process around collecting ideas. So I've seen many companies as they grow into midsize, the ideas flow from typically the founder one at a time. And I've worked with many to say, look, let's every quarter have a strategic planning session and we're going to brainstorm and collect every possible idea and let's do some extra work ahead of that to see what the competition's up to and what's working and what's not, right? Let's do some strategic analysis of the marketplace and bring all that to this quarterly meeting. You might get 10 or 15 ideas, but, but forcing everyone to think ahead of time, not just when they're driving up and back in the car, and then look at all of those and have a really good debate with a smart team gets much more ideas, much better ideas, much better honing. And in those meetings, we not only pick the ones we want to investigate further, but we agree on the ones we're not going to investigate because focus and picking the best ideas and investing there is a huge takeaway. Mm. And, you know, and, and when you use the word investing, a lot of people forget this. It's not just investing with your capital. It's investing with your management team's time. It's investing with your uh, time resources. And it's one of the things you mentioned here is time and getting control of time. A absolutely. And uh, time, you know, in a small business, often we have that sense of urgency. We're running around. We're trying to get things done. But as a business gets bigger, sometimes time becomes the enemy. Mm. And it's a couple of reasons. One is that, again, to drive a mid-sized business, we have to tackle projects that are really hard, big IT systems, complex pro uh, new products, and so on and so forth. And so there's, a, there's an art and a skill to managing a big project. And it starts with, of course, outlining what the project really is and what we're trying to achieve and doing that in a much disciplined way because there might be 30 people that have to all be engaged and understand that project to deliver it. Very different from when you're quite small. Mm -hmm. And then once we're really clear on what we're doing, then we have to break it out into steps and someone has to project manage those steps and really stay on top of them and the CEO in a, in a mid-sized business has to support that and back that and not tinker with it or get ideas and borrow resources. And so it's a whole new level of discipline to work those things so that progress in the company 
moves along with each tick on the clock. And that's really hard and is one of those those uh, silent growth killers. Who should drive the clock? Who should be the, the clock monitor that steps into the meeting and says, guys, what the heck's going on? You're three weeks behind schedule. So it depends on the size of the company and the project. In a 10 or $20 million mid-sized company, so on the small end of the side, the CEO may have to be that person. Mm-hmm. Certainly, if they don't respect it and they aren't demanding that we stay on track and that we have time on our side, the organization will not. Uh, there are other cases in smaller businesses where, uh, for example, the CFO is. CFOs tend to be a little bit more disciplined in their approach. So it may be someone at that level. As a business grows to 100, 200, 300 million, it's going to be um, increasingly a C-suite executive, whoever is the executive sponsor of that project. And at that size, you start to get project managers who are trained in this. And if they get the support from executive management, can really be helpful in keeping the team on track and keeping them focused. Mm. But I will add, Bob, that in, in company of any size, if, if at the top there isn't the discipline to prioritize, then time will never be on their side. The company that wants to do everything and implement a new ERP system right alongside with four new projects, right alongside with moving into a new country, say Mexico, and just wants to do everything that looks interesting to do, will never have time on their side because you just can't get everything done. And you'll tend to have a very frustrated management team. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and a lot of wasted time. Um, let's just touch on the seven points. You've got letting time slip, uh, slip slide away. Then you've got uh, strategy tinkering at the top, reckless attempts at growth, fumbled strategic acquisitions, operational meltdowns, the liquidity crash, and tolerating dysfunctional leaders. These things aren't in the order that they happen. It's not that because you're letting time slip away that strategy tinkering is going to become a problem. These things are all basically happening at the same time. Uh, and if, well, if you're very unfortunate, and at least three or four of them are happening on a daily basis, I would say. How do you manage this tsunami of potential killer things? Right. Well, they, they, they can't happen at the same time. And they don't all happen at the same degree in all businesses, of course. Mm. I'll give you two answers to that. The last chapter, Tolerating Dysfunctional Leaders, is last for a reason, because without a group of strong leaders in any business, you're at higher risk of all of the other six silent growth killers taking effect. Um, there is nothing more wonderful than leading a mid-sized business where you've got five or six in the C-suite who are really competent, who are all pulling to deliver on the company's mission and have the requisite experience and discipline that they should. I mean, that is so much fun. And they will automatically be looking at most of these six other silent growth killers to try to mitigate them. They'll be more aware of them. So that from a broad perspective is one point. But it leads us to the conclusion of the book where I talk about something called leadership infrastructure. And leadership infrastructure is the is the set of all the the leaders, the processes, the communication cadence, the governance, and the planning that helps leaders of a mid-sized organization hold the company together. And if you, if I take you back to a small company, picture a, a $2 million company, a startup. Typically, you've got one very bright founder who works hard, thinks about a lot of things, has a team of five or 10, 
uh, managers or helpers that help him or her get there. And that's all you really need because from between the time when he or she gets up in the morning and goes to bed at night, they can keep all those plates spinning and it works just fine. But when that business grows into midsize, it's it's just frankly too much. And and I often see as clients these CEOs who are just at wit's end, um, trying to pick up pieces and plates are falling and uh, and frustrated that their team can't do what seems to them to be some pretty obvious processes. And that's when you need leadership infrastructure. And it's it's saying, look, the, the team that might have gotten you to 10 or 15 or 20 million may not be the team that can take you further because we need some different skill sets. And this sort of ad hoc talking about things as it comes up isn't going to really keep us stable. We need some sort of a written business plan that really outlines what we're all going to do for the year that everyone can look at, everyone can create, and we can hold ourselves accountable to. And we're going to have to have some cadence, some regular meeting that looks at whether or not we're on plan. These are just a few of the pieces of leadership infrastructure. And it's it's hard to build because people that have never been in a larger organization haven't ever seen it. And people that have started their careers in very large organizations, billion dollar plus, have seen it at scale, but they've never built it either. And so it's a it's a system of building simple approaches, simple plan, simple meetings um, that that really make a huge difference. And with that leadership infrastructure in place, it makes it much harder for the growth killers to attack. Hmm. Yeah. I, I- listening to you just then, I was thinking about the different types of managers that I've run across. And you in in a in a situation when you're growing a team or evolving your team, a lot of times you really, really have to know the different managing styles. And there are so many. And you, you kind of mentioned that with the CFO, they tend to be more disciplined and more uh, numbers driven, where uh, you have a very hot uh, CEO and they tend to be more shoot from the hip and lots of great ideas. So how do you build a team? What are you looking for in, in skill sets uh, for individual uh, groups? Do you want a team that's that's got a mix of these people or should we be more analytically strong? What do you do when you're trying to put the pieces together? Right. Well, it's a mix and, and as a company grows, it's, it is very organic in that you may have an amazing sales and marketing leader who isn't very disciplined, but you realize the first change you're going to make is over on the finance side because with a good CFO, they can help take a few things off of that sales leader's plate or add discipline as needed to create balance. So it's it does develop at a different pattern. But, but broadly speaking, as an organization grows, discipline, increased discipline is needed at all levels. And discipline doesn't mean no creativity, and discipline certainly does not mean you don't move every bit as fast. But it's an acknowledgement that no one person can deliver what an organization needs at 50 or 100 million. And so teaming is one of those disciplines. Being able to communicate regularly is one of those disciplines. Uh, and, And finding value in a little bit of management, right? Managing results, managing expectations, managing to a plan is crucial. And those people who hate that, who won't do that, who want to be very open and very free form, aren't as well suited for leading in a mid-sized business as they are in an entrepreneurial environment. Mm-hmm. And I've got you know one client that we were just having a sandwich 
and uh, and this client took the business from start up to about 40 million and it's hitting some road bumps and there's some really frustrating things happening right now and and he said to me you know i think i'm just going to in the future start businesses grow them to about 10 million and either hold them at that point or sell them and then start something new because he just hates this middle management part and trying to get people to follow plans and it's boring to him and this guy's got incredible creativity incredible ideas started six businesses and exited them over his time and you know what that realization is precious and he's absolutely right if he's better suited for small entrepreneurial businesses you can produce a ton of value in that zone Absolutely. Oh, and also, he he has a game plan. He's got like, this is my exit strategy. I'm going to build to here. I can drive to here. But then he can also be reaching out and looking at other organizations that may want to buy into that asset or uh, basically finding somebody in the organization saying, you know what? You would be perfect for the CEO of this company and get the guy ready to go. And when he steps away, the guy takes over. That's right. And if that's possible, and some people can do that, but there's an art to that as well. And honestly, governance, when you own a business and you give it to someone else to step in and take over, isn't the end of it. And that's been tried too many times as well. That's where a board comes in. And some, uh, every organization benefits from a board, but some founders will even tinker when they bring in a CEO and they'll interfere in that isn't necessarily a good solution either. So if you can really go from being the operator, the founder, to being a good board member who understands the difference, if you're willing to bring on other board members who know how boards are supposed to work and 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 build plans where boards can hold a company or a CEO accountable to achieving a plan, because boards aren't supposed to run the business either, that's fantastic. But many founders worry that if they cede control to a board, they won't get what they want. That's a big fear factor. And so, you know, I look carefully at clients that we work with and say, are they capable? Do they have what it takes to really lead a mid-sized business at the board level or not? And if they do, fantastic. There's a lot to be learned. And that's what this book focuses on. But it isn't for everybody. Mm. I think that's a very salient point. It's not for everybody. And there, you know, there was a wonderful book that we, we did uh, about a year ago called From Bud to Boss. And it's about when you, you run a crew and then you've done well and then the boss comes and says, you know what, you're going to manage these guys. And it's the psychological difference of can you become the boss of your buddies and the whole process of growing away from those relationships and trying to keep the team going. And you could take that on every level of an organization. And as people grow in the organization, they've got to divest themselves of who they were before and become this new person. And sometimes they're just not able to do it. Is there any way of knowing that's what's going to happen unless you put the person in that situation or can you like we're doing uh, with a lot of the ideas test three people and then pick the best one well that's interesting so I'm going to interpret that in terms of a CEO that has two or three people who are coming up through the ranks and how do we know which one can really um, shift their loyalties 
from their buds to the mission of the organization. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, of the- I think that's that's a very real thing that happens with a lot of organizations, where, especially with somebody who's very good at their job, tend to have a lot of followers and uh, tend to be really good people managers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my favorite approach to that is, is A, give all three a try, but there's any number of projects, chunks of work that need to be managed in an organization. And what I tend to look for, for one, is people who are excited about moving up. They really want it. They're really eager for it. If I'm pushing them to do that, that's usually a bad sign. That's usually not going to work. And then you have to coach in manner. It's not throwing a project at someone, but spending a little time with them, seeing whether they learn what you teach them the first time, and then seeing how well they wrap their arms around a project and what kind of results they get and how they work with others to get there. That, to me, is a, is a great first step. And then there may be some longer-term project or something that's cross-functionally that, that might be a better test as well. What's, what's interesting is this shifting notion of loyalty. And, and frankly, one of the reasons that mid-sized companies have uh, dysfunctional leadership teams so often, one of the biggest reasons is what I call misplaced loyalty. And it doesn't just happen to your buds who then become your subordinates. It can happen to people that help you get the company to midsize. And these are a smart, great, fantastic team. And then before you know it, you're at 30 or 40 million and they seem to be struggling or they're burnt out or they don't like this new sort of infrastructure around leading a midsize business. Yet so many business owners and leaders feel a a loyalty to them and they keep those people in place. They keep paying them. They make excuses for them. They don't hold them accountable. And that stunts the growth of the entire organization. And and usually what, what helps change that is a realization that a leader that allows that, that has that, that, that gives misplaced loyalty is really disloyal to the mission of the organization. And I'll tell you a story. I was at a, a, an event with a number of CEOs and this CEO was leading a nonprofit. And she was talking about how she felt terrible about potentially dismissing the sales leader. They'd come in through a merger and there had been a lot of high hopes and it had been six months and the sales leader wasn't bringing in the donations that were required. And um, and after listening to this for about 10 or 15 minutes, uh, I, I asked her how many children weren't getting the benefits of the nonprofit as a result of the money that was being wasted on this leader. And how did she feel about that? And it hit her like a ton of bricks because she hadn't really looked at it that starkly that by tolerating and being loyal to someone that had helped in the past, that it was costing children, in this case, the benefits of the organization. But that's incredibly crucial. We have to all be loyal to the mission of the organization uh, or we shouldn't be there. Mm. And then you also can't be too extreme and become heartless. No, you can't. And and so, you know, one of the concepts I put in the book is that loyalty is like a bank account, right? If someone's very loyal and they're working hard and they're delivering value, their bank account is filling up, their loyalty bank account. If they run into a life's road bump, a divorce, something happens, hey, we understand. But if that bank account is full, it's got plenty of deposits that'll kind of drift down to give them a chance to kind of get through that or to coach them or try to help them. But at some point, as a leader we can't tolerate people whose bank accounts have run dry and are now pulling value out of the organization. Mm -hmm. So give them a chance, 
help them, have some patience, especially if they have contributed more recently and in a bigger way, but there has to be a limit. It has to move fairly quickly. Organizations cannot continue growing with dysfunctional leaders in place. I've got a question I ask all my authors, and when you're, you know, you're a smart guy and you've been doing this for, for quite a long time, you've helped many, many, many companies. Um, when you were gathering this information and putting this new book together, for you, what was the crystallization of an idea? What was something that you knew was a truth but wasn't something you got at a very fundamental level, and it was like, aha, now I really get that word. I really get this idea. For you, what was that? Well, there was <clears throat> many, many of them. And I think, you know, the one that, that I remember clicking actually while doing the research, because a lot of this was developed in ideas and hypotheses before the research even began, just from years of experience, was how to really uh, deal with this reckless attempts at growth issue. and. Why was it that some companies can take on projects that deliver 50, 100, 200 million dollars in revenue and do it with such great discipline and great results, whereas others get in there and, uh, and just waste millions when in retrospect it certainly appeared obvious. And it was through a series of interviews with uh, some really disciplined people, one CFO in particular, where it, it, it clicked into place, that the amount of work that these pros put into understanding how the marketplace is going to react into their own ability to execute and de-risking that, and then the incredible skill of forecasting to really understand what's likely to happen three months, six months, nine months, a year out, that really crystallized for that chapter through the research. Hmm. You know, you used the word, a very powerful word, forecasting and that's uh, you know basically the somebody that uh, does the fortune telling for the company how difficult and I know this is really difficult but really how difficult is it to find somebody that is an accurate forecaster or how do you manage a forecast is probably a better word because a forecast a lot of it is they do research but they have to have a gut feeling based on that research and that's something you can't train how do you manage your forecaster Right. Well, you know, one word that, that, that I didn't hear just now was experience. So you can't be a good forecaster without experience. And, and that's the first thing I look for, someone that has dealt with projects or challenges of the scale or maybe even 2x the scale of what I'm anticipating so that um, they, they've seen there, they've known that when the sales guy comes in and makes these kinds of estimates in these kinds of situations that there's normally a 2x variability and they can adjust for that. They have seen the surprises that pop in two or three times before. They can kind of adjust and manage those. So that's one big piece is that there has to be the experience there. Second is that they're not just a spreadsheet jockey. Too many forecasters love their formulas and calculations and this spreadsheet is so cool. And I love that too, by the way. <laughs> but uh, a, a, a really good, I'll just say CFO, but a good forecaster is really out in the field as well. They're, they're talking to the sales team. They're talking to the engineers that are building things. And they're, they, they've got their fingers in so deeply that they're making their own judgments about the competency of other leaders, of other teams. They're out there talking to investment bankers and have some idea of what the competition's up to. So they've got that data as well. So that's a piece. And then secondarily, 
half the art of having a good forecast is the effort that you make to stay on the forecast after the original forecast is made. So <laughs> we're rolling in, right, two months, and they're like, hey, we were supposed to be selling this much. We're not. What are we going to do about that? Do we have to cut back on the spend? You know, how are we going to maintain our profit number if our sales number isn't there? They've got contingency plans. They are banging on the door of the CEO's office if the CEO is running amok. By the way, that's another huge element in forecasting accuracy is a proven ability for the CEO to restrain him or herself from running off plan. Mm. It happens all the time. And so really good forecasters are tough. They're full-fledged executives that help shape the outcome to forecast of the activities of the organization. Hmm. Why did you decide to write this book? After so many years as a CEO and, what, 11 or 12 years in a CEO group where CEOs would come together and talk about their challenges and 80-some clients, you'd start to see patterns and get a new client. It's always very exciting. And you walk in and you peel back, you know, the onion a little bit. And you say, holy cow, we're here again. You know, we've got another acquisition that everyone's so excited about. And they're diving in and they haven't done these five things. Holy cow. And you see the pain that organizations go through as they suffer the consequences. And I thought, you know what? I want to identify a handful of the most common things that stop the growth of a mid-sized organization, clarify my thinking, do some research, lay it out, and deliver something that uh, mid-sized company leaders can use to help reduce the pain. Because i got to tell you, a mid-sized business that's running well is so beautiful. I mean, millions of dollars flowing through, people excited, teams engaged, and then to see them hit one brick wall or another when a killer comes in and stops that, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking, and I'm hoping this book will help. Hmm. You know, it, it, it's almost like a book of hindsight, where is, uh, you always say, gosh, if we'd only known, if we'd only known, and if you read this book, you know, so get it together. Uh, before we run away, how and where should people go to learn more about the book? Uh, do you guys have a blog? What, what's, uh, what's a great way for people to keep on track? Right. So um, I do on, on our website, uh, www.ceotoceo.biz. There's a uh, click on, on new book and there's all kinds of information about the book and connections to where things are posted, of course. And it's available, you know, through all booksellers, online, and so on and so forth. For uh, my listening audience, what should they do today to make their business move in the right direction for becoming mighty? If I had to give you one very simple, short piece, it would be assess your leadership team and strengthen it. If there was just one short little piece, that is so critical. Uh, a mid-sized business cannot be mighty unless it has a strong leadership team. You did uh, mention it earlier on, but you also illustrated that if you have a, a strong uh, senior, senior team, that you're able to handle a lot of these things that are happening. We, we were talking earlier about these things can happen all at the same time or multiple ones can happen all at the same time. And if you have a strong team, you're able to kind of hold the company together. It doesn't start crumbling apart. 
owners that are struggling with growth based on teams, how do you find the talent or how do you nurture the talent? Because, you know, there's a famous saying, this, that ideas are easy, the money's easy, getting people to execute it, that's the tough part. So, so the next piece I would give you then is about planning. And too many mid-sized companies don't have any planning or it's not the right kinds of planning. And so if you've got a strong team coming together and writing a clear plan, I like to see both an operational plan and a strategic plan where we've argued what the right things are to do or the wrong things. We've written down our decisions. We've identified KPIs and targets. And then we manage ourselves to that plan. That gets a team working together much better it helps us prioritize, it helps us focus. That is a huge element as well. Hmm, awesome. Mighty Mid-Size Companies, How Leaders Overcome Seven Silent Growth Killers. Robert, thank you so much for being on the show. It was very enlightening. You're very welcome. I'm, I'm delighted to have been here and thank you, Bob, for inviting me. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that show and do me a favor and tweet about it. Follow us on Facebook if you haven't done that already. We really appreciate it. See you next week.